In Scotland, when friends get together, they blether. When these three friends happen to be Scottish Blue Badge tourist guides, you can be sure that the country that they're so passionate about will be right at the heart of their discussions. Be it contemporary or historical, culinary or cultural, reminiscence or anecdote, from accommodation to zoos, the chat will range right across the entire alphabet of topics and issues that are live and happening in Scotland right now. We hope that you'll join us. There's nothing to beat a recht git blether. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of Scottish Blethers with... Liz and Helen and my name's Susan. Over the next 30 minutes or so, we're going to be covering the following topics. Liz. Well, if you're walking about the streets of Scotland at the moment, and there's not very many people are doing that because of COVID, but you're likely to see people wearing poppies with pride because this is approaching, as we record this, we're approaching Remembrance Sunday. Helen. And I'm going to be talking about an animal that we just absolutely love here and you see more and more of them now, and that is the Heland Koo. And I'm going to be taking you back a couple of thousand years in history to the original defensive, well, some could say debate that, structure called a broch, B-R-O-C-H. Okay, so lots going on this week then. Let's kick off with you, Susan. Tell us all about brochs. Brochs, beautiful structures, and we still have the remains of many of them, almost five to six hundred left, they reckon, across Scotland. What are brochs? Well, they are round stone buildings that were developed between about 600 BC and 100 AD. They are hollow-walled structures, and they have a staircase running between these two walls. They're round in, in size, uh, a staircase running to higher levels, maybe the first high-rise buildings ever in the world. Design is pretty much the same, and some people think that there might have been travelling master craftsmen. But it would have taken so much manpower to put these together. Was it also just a symbol of prestige, wealth and power? Your modern-day country mansion or castle? Broch comes from the word broch, B-R-O-U-G-H, meaning fort, and it could also have been taken from the Old Norse, berg or borg. They're referred to as duns in the west of Scotland. There's 120 alone on Shetland, and mainly they're found in the Northern Isles, so Orkney and Shetland, up in Caithness, some in Sutherland, and the west coast of Scotland, with the odd one further south, but really not many at all. In these brochs, you would have in the entranceway a kind of a long tunnel, quite low, that people would have to crouch down to get into. And then there'd be a little guard chamber just at the entrance doorway, really, which was a good way to stop anyone getting in. In the middle, usually it would be earth or possibly a bit of stone with a hearth in the middle. And then you had the staircase leading to upper floors with different cells for potentially different families. And in some of these brochs, they would have almost like a pinwheel system round the outside of the brock with other little dwellings or a community round about it. There were many phases of habitation and abandonment. So can you imagine with all these round buildings around the outside of the brock, how these people would have lived? Would they have had livestock in there? How did a high rise work in prehistoric society? 
Well, we still have a few left today that can give us a good idea of what they were like. One of the best surviving ones is up in Shetland called Musa. There's Dundornigal in Sutherland. There's Duntelv and Duntrodden at Glenelg and also Duncarloway on the Isle of Lewis. Also, we have the Caithness Brock Project who are trying to raise funds and find a suitable site to build a new broch based on the old style to see how it would have been built and how life would have been. And they're raising funds to do that at the minute. So give Caithness Brock Project a bit of a follow on social media. So ladies, which of the brochs have you been to on your travels and what do you think of them? I've been to the Duncarloway one on Lewis. And the first time I went, I was just amazed both by its location real vantage point overlooking you know, the island but also as you mentioned the the double skin with the staircase in the middle and the mathematics it must have taken to work out how to place the stones in order to make it stand and also taper in because it's got this kind of rounded, almost beehive structure to it. Well, I love Orkney and Shetland because there are very few trees there. So the people built in stone and you have all these prehistoric buildings that give you such an insight into how our ancestors lived. And I visited Musa. I was very fortunate to visit Musa at the time where the stormy petrels, the little storm petrels, tiny little birds come for two weeks in the year in May and they nest in the crevices in Musa Broch. And they come at night because they spend their time out at sea during the day to protect them from predators. And they come back to roost at about midnight. Now, out on the Shetland Islands in summertime, we have what's called the simmer dim, where it never gets dark. It just gets dusk. So as the dusk draws in, thousands of these little stormy petrels, these tiny birds, begin to return to their nests and the noise inside the broch is just deafening. And it was the, the night I was there, it was a fabulous night. There was fluorescence coming off the water, beautiful sunset, one of the experiences of a lifetime. Wow, that sounds amazing. That was wonderful. I was just thinking an experience of a lifetime, not quite so sort of romantic and sort of picturesque as you've described, was actually trying to crawl in through that very narrow entrance, you low entrance, Susan, that you mentioned. Yes. That it, it, it really, it tells you whether your knees and your back are working properly. <laughs> <laughs> I quite enjoy visiting the one at Carn Leith, at Sutherland, just near Dunrobin Castle. It's also called Strath Stevenbrock. It's not the tallest one that remains in Sutherland, but it is one of the best preserved. And it's got this idea of these little buildings, outbuildings around the outside of the broch itself. And the best bit about that one is it looks right across the water to the Moray coastline. And they reckon between the, the inhabitants of the brochs and then onto the picks, there was a lot of trade going on across there. So it's quite interesting to think how people were actually living. But there have been some artefacts found in some of the, the brochs that show that there was trade as far away as the Mediterranean for olives and other things like that. So it's quite amazing to think that even in those days, you know, 600 BC to 200 AD, they were trading right across Europe. And I suppose with the Romans, obviously they were, but you don't quite think that when you get to the top of Scotland, you don't see it as being the centre. And there is some debate over whether Orkney and Shetland was the centre of this Brock society. 
Absolutely. And what you said about it being status as well as defence, when you actually stand inside one of these and you see the immense size of them mm -hmm. and the amount of effort they would have taken to bring all these stones and rocks into place and you see the goods and the way that it was laid out on the inside and how people lived, it was very much about status. Yes, and, and as we say today about this, you know, where you buy your house, location, location, location. That's very that true, kind of yeah. Picture. And there it was very definitely the status was deemed by the location that you chose to build your brock as well. And a lot of them on Orkney and Shetland obviously are right on cliff edges. So there was definitely some form of defence there too. Some of them unfortunately have been lost partially because of their location. And other ones just make you think, you know, keeping an eye on who was coming and going, island life at its very best. Yeah, it's there that you really get an appreciation of archaeology and just trying to understand you know, how these people lived and survived in their prehistoric um, societies. Yes, and I yeah. think part of, part of this, the understanding is to kind of make people realise that travel was not invented in the 20th or the 21st centuries, that people have been travelling and trading and you communicating with other places for yeah. thousands of years. It wouldn't be a surprise mm. if you found a little bit of orange peel in the hearth from the days that they traded with the, the Mediterranean. <laughs> yeah, they needed, right, they yes. needed their vitamin C up in Orkney and Shetland. <laughs> anyway, moving on. So my theme this episode is remembrance. So ladies, I'm going to ask you a question first of all. Do you know the difference between Remembrance Day and Remembrance Sunday? Remembrance Day is the 11th of the 11th yep. of the 11th, the 11th hour of the 11th, the 11th month, day. the 11th day. Yep. Remembrance Sunday is the closest one to it. Yes, I would say that too. Right. So if I ask you then, what's the difference between Remembrance Day and Armistice Day? Ooh. Ooh. I, I would say the Armistice Day was the day the Armistice was signed at the end of World War One. Well done, Helen. Gold star. You're absolutely right. Armistice Day marks the end of the First World War, or the Great War as it was known. And you're absolutely right, Susan, that the armistice or treaty that brought that war to an end was signed in a railway carriage a few miles north of Paris. And it brought to an end the fighting six hours later on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. So you were both right there. But then a year later, at the suggestion of a politician, King George V requested that the country pause in silence for two minutes to reflect and remember the reverent remembrance of the glorious dead. So a period of silence on Armistice Day became the tradition right up until the outbreak of World War II in 1939. And then it was decided that commemoration wouldn't be held as normal but instead, a proximate Sunday would be observed as a day of dedication for the length of the, of the war. So I suppose when you think about it, they didn't want people stopping work and putting down tools. It was best to keep them working during the war and move the remembrance to the Sunday. At the conclusion of the war, the British government officially replaced Armistice Day with Remembrance Sunday, and they fixed it as the second Sunday of the month of November. And this occasion now honours the dead not only of both world wars, but also all subsequent conflicts. Many countries around the world continue to honour the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, and many call it Remembrance Day, although others, like the United States, have Veterans Day, and there's lots of other names for it as well. But gradually, we've adopted this name too. And so we have both Remembrance Day and we have Remembrance Sunday. 
The poppy has become the official symbol of remembrance right across the world. This plant's an extremely good colonizer and it grew prolifically in the bleak, barren mud of the battlefields of Western Europe, where little else would grow. This inspired a Canadian surgeon called Lieutenant Colonel John McRae to write the famous poem In Flanders Field as a tribute to a friend that had been killed in the fighting at Ypres. In Flanders fields the poppies blow, between the crosses row on row. And the poem ends, If you break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders field. And so from that, an American academic from Georgia called Moina Michael decided to start selling silk poppies to friends in order to raise money for the servicemen at the end of World War I. Together with a French woman called Madame Garin, they popularised the poppy around the world and they persuaded Earl Haig to adopt it as the symbol of the British Legion, which was founded in 1921. Today, 40,000 volunteers distribute over 40 million poppies across the UK. Last year, they raised over £50 million. So you can imagine how devastating COVID is going to be on collections this year. Thousands of poppies are released from the roof of the Royal Albert Hall and drift down to cover the audience and participants in a poignant conclusion to the annual Festival of Remembrance, which takes place on the eve of Remembrance Sunday. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. For many of you overseas, you might associate remembrance events in the UK with the Cenotaph in London, where members of the royal family, the Prime Minister and senior politicians lay wreaths leading the nation in honouring all those who gave their life for their country in war. But similar events are being held all over the United Kingdom and none more so than in Scotland, which has perhaps suffered more than most as the Scots have traditionally been disproportionately represented in the armed forces. If there's one thing we do well, it's fight. (laughs) Across almost every community in Scotland, there's some form of war memorial, on main streets, in churches, or located at poignant viewpoints. They take many forms, from Celtic crosses to obelisks, cairns and statues. Apart from civic monuments, There are plaques or fountains, memorial gardens, stained glass windows, hospitals, the list is endless. In fact, it's estimated that there are over 10,000 war memorials in Scotland. Few communities and even families weren't touched in some way by the impact of World War I or the Great War as it was known. Many had joined up together from the same district or village, sports club or workplace And so when their regiments were committed to battle, the repercussions on the local communities were devastating. More names have been added or new memorials built at the end of World War II, and they continue to be added to right up to the present day. We even have new memorials still being built. We're very good at remembering, but some may say, do we ever learn? So ladies, we see them everywhere, all over the country many beautiful and poignant memorials. So which ones stand out for you? I'm going to say the one in Sterling. Uh, because <laughs> There's the a surprise. Surprise. I, thought, I thought you would have a wee smile at that. But I remember in Sterling, my first memories of the War Memorial and Remembrance Sunday is, you know, from a very early age, in the 1950s, where we were in guides, the girl guides, and all uniformed organisations marched 
from the church, the service in the church to the War Memorial in Stirling. And yep, that I remember was the time, that as well. Yep. Yes. And that was the time where the Argyll and Sutherland Highlanders, their main barracks was Stirling Castle. So they were there as well, plus pipe bands. And it was just an amazing, very, very moving service in the freezing cold. <laughs> but November is not a warm month in Scotland. And in those days, we were not allowed to wear coats. We had to have our uniforms properly washed and ironed for the parade. Quite right, too. What about you, Susan? I think for me, and the one that still puts a lump in my throat is the Command Memorial at Spean Bridge, which was dedicated to the original British Royal Marine Commando Forces who were basically formed and trained in that area. The sculpture itself is of three soldiers and three commandos dressed in their standard dress with webbing and a rifle, and they're looking south to Ben Nevis, and it says on it in the top of the plinth, which is about 5.2 metres or 17 feet. It says, United We Conquer. Yeah, that one's... It's, it's, just, it's viewpoint is amazing. I think the history of the Royal Marine Commandos that had to do their mm-hmm. seven-mile speed march in full battle kit within an hour, and if they were even a second late, they were returned to unit, is quite something. And what really gets me is that that route is, re- is redone every year by serving or retired commandos but there's also a garden of remembrance next to it where you see people from later conflicts who have lost their lives and it's a mixture of people that are only like 19 years old right up to retired commandos who have now passed away and it's their families remembering them it's a really poignant place that one's particularly poignant for me because my father-in-law was a commando and he signed up on new year's eve and did his training at achnikari and was involved in the Normandy landings, the beach landings, where he was injured. He took shrapnel in the shoulder. He was in a hospital for a year, and he lived to be 94 years old. But to the day he died, every day he had to dress the wound in his shoulder because it never healed. He had to dress it twice a day. And he never spoke about it. Uh, They were just so grateful to be the ones that came home. And I think we have to be so grateful to everybody that has given up their life yeah. that they that they were fighting for. And of course, that's a recent one. That's 1952 commemorating the Second World War. But of course, we have some that predate the, the First World War. We have one in Largs for the Battle of Largs. We were defending Scotland against the Vikings. Oh, yes. and perhaps, Back in the 1200s. Yeah, again, one of these, one of these famous ones is Culloden, where we have the Cairns at Culloden commemorating Bonnie Prince Charlie's battle with the the Redcoats of the Duke of Cumberland. I just find walking on Culloden Field is just so emotive. You just feel it. You feel everything about Culloden Field there. And similarly, the Commando Memorial, no matter how often I go to either of these places, and you just want to be quiet and remember. I think that's particularly true when you go to some of the Western Isles. Every village, every settlement has got its war memorial. And, you know, the the names of brothers and families that were wiped out, again, they're usually in viewpoints, which are just beautiful, you know, the final place of remembrance for so many people that were lost from the communities. And obviously there's other tragedies associated with the war. And at the end of the First World War, up in the Isles of Lewis and Harris, when the ship was returning with all the soldiers coming back, and unfortunately within sight of the islands, Mm. 
it got into difficulty and sunk with a huge loss of life. But we'll maybe keep that one for another episode. Yeah, the story of the Islea. There's so much that we can come back to in this. And in Stornoway, in the harbour at Stornoway, is perhaps the largest war memorial. It is absolutely enormous towering over mm. the town of Stornoway. And you can climb to the tops on the top of a hill. So there's so many places to see, so many stories. And we're lucky in that we have an online organisation now who are trying to get the names from each of the war memorials and to look after them and catalogue them and update the records so that anybody can go and find information on family members that may have lost their lives during the conflicts. So that's the, the story of remembrance and we'll remember on Sunday. So Liz, I'd heard that there's different colours of poppies. Can you tell us anything about that? Yeah, it's quite controversial. Some people don't like the idea of red poppies because they think that kind of it's glamorising war in some way. And so there was movements to change the colour. So, for example, a white poppy can be worn as a symbol of peace. But what I find really interesting is the purple poppy, because the purple poppy is in remembrance of all the animals that died during both world wars but in particular you know if you've seen war horse and the horses and the donkeys and all the animals that lost their life in the trenches and if you ever visit the national war memorial in edinburgh edinburgh castle there's memorials there to the animals everything down to the little canaries that lost their life being used to test for gas in the trenches and in the mines that's a fabulous panel that they've got there it's amazing the artwork in the national war memorial it is a fabulous place on the light to note Helen, tell us all about the Heeland Coo. Yes, it is a bit lighter. The Heeland Coo, the Highland Cow. My very first knowledge or visit or face to face encounter with a, a Heeland Coo was on a croft in Tyree, that's a small island on the Outer Hebrides of Scotland. And it was a beautiful little red coated calf. And since then, I've absolutely loved them all. This animal was the mainstay of the economy of the Scottish Highlands and Islands for many centuries. At a local level, the Highland cow could produce milk for dairy products, the hair could be used for weaving, and eventually the hide and leather had a host of uses. From the 18th century onwards, vast numbers of these animals were gathered in the summer for driving south to the markets. Many small markets and trades supported this drive, including that of the blacksmith who had to make shoes for the cattle who walked on new roads. These cattle had been in the hills and on the fields, but they had to walk hundreds of miles on new roads. The flow of cattle and their attendant drovers and dogs moved across the glens and hills to reach the big trysts at Creef, Falkirk and Stirling, just on the edge of the highlands in the lowlands. Thousands of beasts would have to swim across the Kyles. These are the narrow stretches of water between the islands to get to the mainland as part of the drove. At the peak of the trade in 1850, this figures just blow me away, some 150,000 cattle were driven and sold at Creef and Falkirk. They were so popular, the Highland cows, that cattle thieving was common and individuals would apply for a commission to set up an official watch, which farmers would pay to retrieve their stolen stock. Rob Roy McGregor, whom you may have heard of, operated a watch, but he was also a cattle dealer and a drover and a wee bit of a rogue as well. Although a group of cattle is generally called a herd of cattle, a group of highland cattle is known as a fold, F-O-L-D. 
This is because in winter, the cattle are kept in open shelters made of stone, and these are called folds, to protect them from the weather at night. In those days, the most common popular colour for the Highlander was black, but that changed when Queen Victoria expressed a preference for the red-coated variety. The fate of the black Heeland coo was sealed on that day. The Highland Cattle Registry, which is known as the Herd Book, was established in 1885, and this is the oldest herd book in the world, which makes them the oldest registered cattle in the world. But there's more to the Highland cow's hairstyle than just wild style. In practical terms, the coat is superb for weathering a climate where summers can be very wet and winters can be very cold. The hair grows in a double layer with a soft undercoat, which is like an insulating coat, and a long overcoat. And the outer coat, the overcoat, is rain-resistant. Nowadays, Highland cattle are bred for their meat, which is lean but well-marbled, normally rated as premium beef. Pure Highland beef commands a premium price due to its fine texture, succulent flavour and high protein content. But numerous tests in Scotland have shown that Highland cattle meat is lower in both fat and cholesterol than even chicken, and it's also high in iron, makes it very, very popular now. Highland cows flourish in environments where feebler cows can't exist. They live in freezing and wet weather, and they provide economic contribution to the most remote areas of Scotland by making use of the poor grazing grounds. So that's a wee introduction to the Heeland Coo. So Liz and Susan, what about you and the Heeland Coo? There's a, a local lady, I can't call her a child and I can't call her an adult yet, I don't think, Fion, who is lives just across the other side of the loch from me. And she's got Fion's Highland Fold. And at the age of about 15, 14, 15, she was able to get a subsidy to help her get a couple of Highland cows. And she's she's great with them and she takes them to shows and everything. And she did the virtual Royal Highland show this year. And she goes into the field and sits down and gives them a cuddle and, you know, kind of fluffs up their head and everything. She's absolutely dedicated to them. It's great. And obviously our visitors love seeing a good old Highland coot. Oh, yes. How many times, girls, have you chased around the countryside trying to get a photo opportunity (laughs) for your visitors? How many times times have you been held up in a traffic jam behind a herd of healing coos that have got out to the road (laughs) on Mull or one of the outer islands? That's right. Or you're kind of working your way around your route going, right, I know there's cows there, there and there. And you get to the first and you're like, damn it, they're not here. Where are we going to find them? Yeah. It's like spotting the big five in South Africa. In Scotland, you've got to see a Highland coo. Although I have to say it is getting easier because Highland cattle are becoming much more popular. I think that was due in no small part to the fact that as a member of the EU, the European Union, they give subsidies for endangered indigenous species. And the numbers were falling so low of the Highland cow that farmers were paid a subsidy to keep them. Of course, then that was compounded by the tourists. So any cafe or restaurant that wanted to get the tourists stopping off, keep a Highland coo. And of course, the fact that we're all going a bit daft and worried about our cholesterol levels, the fact that it's proven to be lower in cholesterol than the normal Aberdeen Angus, there's now quite a lot of crossbreeding going on to try and get the best of the good beef cattle and the Highland cattle. So it's there's quite a lot going on in the farming world, I think, with them. 
Yes, there's a, a farmer not far from Clava Cairns that I go to quite a lot with my groups. And you can actually get a bus there. And he's in my phone as the Highland Cooman, <laughs> Neil Alexander. And it's great because I've taken groups of Outlander fans there. And it's a real case of the farmer wants a wife. <laughs> so the draw is his Highland Coos. And then he loves the chat he gets from all my guests. And he tells them all about his cows, which are, you know, hybrid, not just pure purebred Highlanders. But it's great because he gets lots of chat and they get lots of chat from him. And we have such a laugh and everybody goes away happy. Very good. That's great. And of course, the coos get an extra feed to bring them up to the to the fence line as well. So they're happy too. Yes. <laughs> That's our wee chat on the Heeland Coo. So we're looking on now to words of the day. Excellent. Well, my word of this episode is fierty. And if you're scared of something, someone says, ah, you big fierty. <laughs> F-E-A-R-T-I-E. I love that Very word. Descriptive. And Liz, what about your word? Well, my word, again, tied in with the theme of remembrance, my word is greet. Now, normally, greet would be to welcome somebody as, as they, they join you. But in Scotland, greet means to cry. Someone having a wee greet to herself or, or greeting. In recent years, it's been extended a wee bit to be used as a put down for somebody, somebody that complains all the time. He's always greeting. Or See that Wayne, he's got a greeting face. Stop your greeting. If you don't stop your greeting, I'll give you something to greet about. <laughs> oh, I've heard that one a few times when I was younger. Yes. And, and my word for the day is drukit. And some of the weather we've had in the past week or two, we've certainly found ourselves drukit, drenched, soaked to the skin. And if you happen to be travelling in Scotland on some of the rare days that we do have these big downpours in the summer, and you look at your field of Heeland coos, you'll think, oh, they just look awful, <laughs> drook it. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will 